0: So we're continuing to look in Genesis chapter 4, and we are kind of titling this whole study A Portrait of Life in a Fallen World, and of course, that just kind of moves us forward in the historical narrative of Genesis, the first few chapters of Genesis. Um, as Genesis chapter 3 concludes, uh, we begin to see, uh, we can kind of anticipate what things might begin to look like uh, if we just sort of stick to the narrative itself. Of course, we know what life in a fallen world uh, looks like all too well, but in, in the flow of the narrative, uh, at the end of Genesis chapter 3, you begin to see that uh, things are probably not going to go so well from this point forward. And of course, Genesis chapter 4 begins to give us a, a broader picture of that, kind of a snapshot of some of the elements of what life in a fallen world uh, looks like. And of course, the focus of the narrative turns quickly to uh, Cain and Abel, the first two sons of Adam and Eve, and we've been talking about this for the last few weeks. Um, and really, our focus has been to not only see Cain and Abel as uh, individuals, as uh, historical figures, as true sons of Adam and Eve, but also as representatives. You know, as Genesis is the book of beginnings, this really gives us the beginning view of what I have determined de- two different societies the society of Cain represented as the unrighteous, those who are unredeemed or the unbelieving, and then the society of Abel or the righteous, those who are part of God's family, those who have been adopted into God's family and who have been made righteous and made right with God. And so we look at the actual narrative as it flows out, but we also extrapolate from that uh, sort of the representative components of what it means to be in the society of the unrighteous, the society of Cain versus the society of the righteous or the society of Abel. And of course, um, what we've kind of put as our our focal point or our focal premise in looking at these two representatives, these two figures, and, and the societies that they represent, if you will, is that there is no middle ground between them. That there's common areas of experience, but there's no middle ground, there's no place in between these two societies in which there is neutral ideology, neutral theology, neutral forms of worship, neutral concepts of what it means to live life uh, in a way that honors God. There's no neutral area here. There's no middle ground in in between these two societies. And we we pointed out early on how oftentimes that is a mistake that uh, we as Christians might make individually or certainly collectively. um, People might set up a church or a ministry to function with this assumption, sometimes People's efforts to evangelize and witness to the lost operates on this assumption that somehow, if we can just we can just find those points of commonality and agreement, then that that serves as a foundation or a springboard for us to then win them over to belief in Christ and ultimate uh, salvation and being reconciled to a right relationship with God. And of course, there's tremendous um, fallacies in, in that assumption that we've talked about a little bit. We're going to continue to look at this, um, this portrait of life in a fallen world and this focus on Cain and Abel and what takes place here in the narrative. Um, And and really what we're going to focus in on today is this whole area of worship, um, the the, the category of worship. We talked about how both of them were worshipers, and we identified that as common in their experience. And it's it's a common uh, part of the narrative. There's a reference to both Cain and Abel. Um, in, engaging in their own um, individual acts of worship and bringing an offering to the Lord. And we made the point a couple of weeks ago, maybe we reiterated it last week, I don't recall, but probably so, that uh, the simple point that everyone is a worshiper. So whether you are in the Society of Cain, the Society of the Unrighteous, or the Society of Abel, the Society of the Righteous, that everyone is a worshiper. Okay, Everyone worships, everyone pays homage. Everyone bows down in some way, form, or fashion. So our focus, though, on looking at this is to not just see the, the fact that everyone is a worshiper and to say that's a great observation to make and, and that's helpful and let's move on, but really to, to focus in on this common experience that's that's played out in the narrative here and really focus in on how it becomes the great differentiator between the two, that this this area of worship serves as this great differentiator between these two individuals and their representative societies, this this area of worship. So everyone is a worshiper. We can can make that agreement. Um, And so there's only a few ways that you can break that down. Either you worship the true God in a true way, or you worship the true God in a false way, or you worship false gods. Or a false god, which is really demonic. It's the worship of demons. It's, the wo- it's Demonic doctrines, the scripture calls it. It's, 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 it's a worship of some external version of God that is false. Or the fourth would be you just worship yourself. You just are, you're, you're your own god. You're your own idol. Those are kind of the basic four ways you would break this down in terms of looking at everyone's direction of worship is going to fall somewhere in that range of, of category. And so what we want to look at is this area of worship and make sure that we understand how it differentiates between those who are redeemed and those who are unredeemed. And I think that what we can probably agree upon from Scripture, and and those of us who are believers would probably agree to this, not just from Scripture, but from an awareness of our own experience of worship, our own practice of worship as part of our life in the body of Christ, is that... It really is a blend or a balance, you might say, between uh, internal and external elements. It's not one or the other. It's not, uh, you know, overbalanced on one side and, and underbalanced on the other. In fact, in the area of worship as a spiritual discipline, that may represent one of the most prominent points of challenge for us as we seek to grow in our faith and our walk with Christ is to have a balanced life of worship, and you have all different types of movements that have emerged over the course of history where this whole area of worship becomes imbalanced, whether it becomes imbalanced on this internal focus where worship is strictly almost exclusively focused as an internal reality that is to be cultivated. The inner man is the focus and the inner life is the focus or it can become completely focused on external action and external acts. And even though they might be rightly prescribed as as acts of what would be considered faithful, worshipful acts, the focus is on the external. And so the key here, I think, for us, both from Scripture and really in general, scripture Scripture more broadly as well as in this text, is to look at the balance of these elements. And just to kind of set our minds around some passages uh, from the New Testament in particular. We mentioned this one um, a few weeks ago, John chapter 4, verses 23 to 24. Uh, Jesus is trying to clarify um, this question about worship, and it's really a question about location. Um, should you, is, does true worship take place on this mountain or this mountain? was the nature of the question. And, and Jesus' response was simply this The hour is coming, and now is here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him god is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth so you have this reference to inner reality and external reality worshiping in spirit and in truth okay similar idea jesus uh speaking in matthew chapter 15 verses 8 to 9 where he's basically rebuking The Gentiles, do you know the hey Siri function? It always picks up me saying hey Siri when I don't. That's why I did that. Um, In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is basically rebuking the Pharisees, and he quotes from Isaiah when he says this "Um, These people, this people honors me with their lips, external, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So this out of balance rebuke or rebuke of of this imbalance in worship of just honoring God with their lips, but having a heart that is far from Him. And of course you have Romans chapter twelve, verse one, which really is a focus on the appropriate posture of our bodies or the presentation or submission of our bodies, he says, uh, the Apostle Paul says in Romans twelve one, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So there's this element of actually physical submission of our bodies as a part of an act of faithful spiritual worship. So just to kind of set some of the broader ideas of Scripture in context about this idea of worship, I want us to focus in on the Genesis 4 passage and look at this whole matter of true versus false worship. But let me just throw this question out there to you. In a broad way, just to kind of get your your thoughts on it. What is worship? When we talk about worship, what, what comes to mind? What is worship? Acknowledge God as God Almighty. Okay, so. Praise and worship. Okay. What else do you think of when you think of worship? Okay. So so focusing your heart and your mind on the character and nature of God and in one in one sense on his holiness, his altogether otherness, his distinctness, his purity and righteousness. And, okay. What else? Anybody think of anything else when you think of just the concept or the the act or the discipline? Any number of things that bring him glory. Okay. lift, up, lift up his name. Okay. So just anything, yeah. I mean, you think about this inner and external balance. It's, it could be any range of things. It could be contemplative in nature. It could be act action in nature that's motivated by a right heart, but that brings God ultimate glory. Well, let's look at this for a second, and I'll come. Hopefully, I'll come around to uh, a concept of worship or a, a kind of a succinct way to look at this definition of worship that pulls all of these biblical principles together for us, and just set in our minds uh, some some key points that. Help us contrast false worship with true worship, because that's really what we see playing out here in the text. Let me read the text to us, first of all, to get it set in our minds. I'm just going to read chapter 4 of Genesis and read the first seven verses. I'm not going to read all the way down through verse 16 like we have been before. Let's just uh, get our minds focused on the first seven verses of Genesis chapter 4. It says, "Now uh, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and also Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desires for you, but you must rule over it. So again, this common experience of worship, everyone's a worshiper, but there's clearly some differentiation here between what is false worship and what is true worship. So um, I think that we can we can label these distinctions, these contrasting concepts of worship in any number of ways. Um, and it, it kind of becomes difficult to, to be overly dogmatic about how you define these things because it, they're, they're so far-reaching in their implications. But, but I tried to come up with a few, from this text, a few uh, comparison, contrast, really contrasting ideas or a comparison of false worship with true worship and what, uh, what you see here in the text most vividly. The first thing is that when you think of false worship and you look at this text, You have to acknowledge that false worship originates from a calculated heart of pride. False worship originates from a calculated heart of pride. True worship, on the other hand, originates from a simple heart of humility. Now, I I chose those terms uh, intentionally. So let's look at the first one for false worship, that it originates from a calculated heart of pride. What I I mean by that is, is that you might say, that the false worshiper, the one who worships, and in this context we're looking at the the, the idea of worshipping the true God in a false way. So worshipping the true God in a false way is net-net false worship. It's not like half-worship. You don't get partial credit. So worshipping the true God in a false way is still false worship. And it originates from a heart, a calculated heart of pride. And it, and it it starts probably by asking questions like this. What can I do or what can I say or what can I produce that will impress God and earn me the esteem and recognition I desire and I deserve? Now, I'm not saying that necessarily false worshipers would articulate things like that specifically, like I'm going to do this because I want to, this and that and the other. But when you look in the text, that's what ends up coming out. That's what ends up being revealed as sort of that the heart of Cain's motivation. So where where do you think we can see that in this text? Where can we see this motivation in his worship of pride? Of of wanting esteem for himself, of wanting to of thinking that his act of worship should be oriented toward gaining him favor and esteem for that for as as an end purpose all to itself like his esteem and his recognition by god was the end goal end goal well, he, got angry. he got angry What were you going to say Right. And he got angry. I mean, his response was one of anger. So, if, think about it this way <clears throat> if your heart motivation was to honor and please another person, you have this object of affection, this, this other person in your life it could be a friend, could be a spouse, could be a family member, but your desire, your heart motivation, your genuine heart posture is, I want to esteem and honor this person. And so you exercise some act that you believe would be fulfilling that desire, would be demonstrating that desire. And that person, you discover, is not pleased by that act. It does not, it's not received in the way that you intended. And they tell you, that did not accomplish the goal. That did not please me. That was not acceptable to me. If your response, then, is anger, you're ticked off at them, then what does that say about the motivation of your heart and the motivation of my heart? Your desire was not in the right place. It was not a sincere desire. It was not a desire to really honor the other person. You were humiliated. You said, well, Lord, then what should I do? Yeah, what can I do? That's right. Your, your, to- your response would be totally different. And so what happens in that kind of situation, that kind of very human-to-human lateral situation is it reveals what's really going on in the heart. The response reveals what's really going on in the heart. Because what I was after is, I was after that person saying, wow, how, how sweet are you? How thoughtful are you? How kind are you? Why, why would you think? That's, that's just amazing. You're one of the most amazing people I know in my entire life. That's what I'm looking for if I respond that way. My heart motivation was not genuine honor for the other person. God. Um, I would choose different words. Okay. I mean, I don't think God assumes anything. I think God knows well, everything. That's true. So I think that it's when you, when you start thinking about this, and this is we ran into the same kinds of things in the Genesis three, and really all throughout Scripture, you run into this where God is engaging man, and it almost looks as though there's this. You know that God knows all things. And can anticipate if you want to use that term or assume from a human perspective. Well, didn't Cain understand that God knew his heart? Uh, well, that's the thing. I mean, when we when we are in sin, what happens to our awareness of what God would know or not know? How we deceive, we deceive ourselves. ourselves. So, I mean, I don't know exactly where his heart is, but I can I can assume that his heart had become I mean it's it, obviously from the reaction, his heart was already hard. It was already resistant, it was blind, and so all of that was probably not taking place to bring conviction. Hebrews 11.4, I brought this up a few weeks ago Mm -hmm. prematurely, Um, it would suggest that Cain did not have faith, per se, Right. because it points out that Abel did, by faith, he, Abel, was commended as a righteous man. Right. That's right. So who do you believe? Who do you have faith in, which means who do you believe? That's right, that's right. So yeah, I mean that clearly the, the there was a if, if if Cain is the representative of the unrighteous, then he's not a representative of one who brings an offering in faith. But, but he has an excuse because he's got the DNA from he who didn't know the truth between Satan and God chose the wrong one. Right, right. Yeah, it's, well, I mean, you know, it's, that's what the Bible says, I mean, right? It's all Eve's fault. Um, so, yes, yeah, so obviously when we say that it originates from a calculated heart of pride, it, it, the, 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 the big reveal is in Cain's response when confronted. It's not on the front end because all you have on the front end is that he brought an offering from the fruit of the ground. Then you have to kind of look at how he responded to realize that this was, a, this was out of complete pride and self-interest that he was doing this. Now, on the other hand, when you think of true worship, it originates from a heart of simple humility. And I use the term simple humility intentionally. Um, Think of it this way. Instead of asking the question, what can I do? What can I say? What can I produce that will impress God and earn me esteem and recognition? It's a very simple question. What may I, a wretched sinner, offer that will please the Lord? That's all I want to know. It's very simple. What pleases the Lord, and that's what I want to do. And if, in my sinful nature, or my immaturity, or just being a fallen creature, I offer worship that is not pleasing, and I discover that, I repent in dust and ashes, and I'm looking for how I can make that right. I'm not responding with, "Well, I mean, you know, I tried." I yeah, yeah. I mean, I gave it. I mean, I gave a hundred percent here. So it's, it's, a, it's a heart disposition. And when I talk about this balance between inner and external, clearly this is, this is where it begins. It begins in the heart. And I thought of these, these uh, New Testament encounters. And, you know, you, you go to the New Testament and you go to the Gospels and you see just what Jesus had to confront over and over again with the Pharisees and their external forms of worship, their false worship. I mean, you can come up with example after example after example but in this whole, this whole principle of just simple humility, a heart of simple humility, what is it that pleases the Lord? That's what I want to do. I thought of Luke 18, um, verses 9 to 14. It says he also, this is Jesus uh, about Christ, he says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He said, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. And so word upon word upon word upon word. I mean forget even what the content of the of the term is. It's just words upon words upon words upon words. The content's bad enough in and of itself. Then it says, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's it. Simple, clear, humble. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. thought of one other example. Uh, and from Luke 20, and then it continues on into the first part of Luke 21. The end of Luke 20, verse 46, starts this way. Beware of the scribes, Jesus says, who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And then in verse 21, Jesus looked up saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Again, out of simplicity. Someone who lives a simple life of poverty, but the heart was to please the Lord, and she gave all that she had. So I just think of these examples from the New Testament of a heart, a disposition of simple humility that characterizes the true worshiper. And clearly Cain did not have that heart. Listen to Calvin's commentary on this whole idea of pride in this text. He says, Such is the innate pride of all hypocrites, that by the very appearance of obedience, they would hold God as under obligation to them, Because they cannot escape from his authority, they try to soothe him with blandishments or flattery. I had to look that up. As they would a child. In the meantime, while they count much of their fictitious trifles, they think that God does them great wrong if he does not accept them or applaud them. But when he pronounces their offerings frivolous and of no value in his sight, they first begin to murmur and then to rage. Their impiety alone hinders God from being reconciled unto them, but they wish to bargain with God on their own terms. When this is denied, they burn with furious indignation, which, though conceived against God, they cast forth upon his children. Thus, when Cain was angry with God, his fury was poured forth on the unoffending brother. So it's that expectation of something in return from God that you would recognize how Magnanimous, my offering of worship is, and that you would honor me for it. Complete opposite of the heart of true worship. The second basic distinction here that I would point us to from the text is that false worship focuses upon what the worshiper produces for God, true worship focuses upon what God has done for the worshiper. Let me say that again. False worship focuses upon what the worshiper produces for God, and true worship focuses upon what God has done for the worshiper. Now this kind of gets more into the outward working of that inward heart. I mean, it stands to reason that if your heart motivation is esteem from God for all of your greatness that you've demonstrated to Him, then the focus of your acts of worship It's, again, focusing on you. Look what I am bringing. Look what I've produced to bring to you. Do you see this? Is it not wonderful? Whereas in the acts of worship, the external acts of worship, whether it's in praise and worship and singing or in contemplative prayer or in service to others, whatever those outward manifestations of a heart of worship would be, its focus is upon what God has done for the worshiper, not what the worshiper can produce, quote-unquote, for God. And you see this implicated in verse 3, where Cain brought of the fruit of the ground. He brought what he could produce and cultivate of the fruit of the ground. And you contrast that with Abel bringing a substitute. He brought a sacrifice. Now, this under the umbrella of recognition, and I think you mentioned this last week, about how this, this whole um, subject of worship, it, it's not isolated, it's not this isolated idea that just kind of percolates here in Genesis chapter 4. There is this recognition, and even, you even get this indication by the way that this narrative flows out, that this was, this was something that was in, in, in some rubric of prescribed worship that had been taught and had been demonstrated initially by the covering uh, with animal skins in the garden when there was insufficient covering of Adam and Eve when they sinned. And there was this first sort of sacrifice, this first shedding of blood um, to cover Adam and Eve. And so the implication here is that they were taught this and this act of worship that's being demonstrated is something that was prescribed. And so for Cain to bring of the fruit of the ground in, in in bringing something that not only is insufficient as a substitute, a representative substitute for, for covering of sin, but it is of his own product, it is what he can produce from the ground, um, is a demonstration of this principle that that's what the focus is upon. But, but Richard, there are places later on where grain offerings were part of the, the ritual right. they were supposed to go through. Right. No, yeah, I'm not saying that the 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 fact that he brought the fruit of the ground in and of itself was the reason why it was not accepted. It definitely was the heart behind it. But I I'm the implication here is that there was this was not the prescribed acceptable form of worship for this occasion. Well in both cases, the thing that was offered was not something that they produced, the ground produced. They have made or created. Yeah, I understand that. I mean, I understand we don't create anything, but it was the it was the work of His hands that produced this, as opposed to bringing a sheep that is just a, an animal that God so, made. Yeah, well. yeah. So again, I mean, we, you know, you can. Th- this is this is uh, this is. It, we we don't have time to deal with the whole sort of sacrificial system and and all the implications of it from this point. But clearly the focus here for Cain was on he just brought what he could pull from the ground. So it was not part of the prescribed manner of worship that was given to them. Let me read Calvin's um, statement on this as well. He says, We may infer for two reasons that the command respecting sacrifice was given to the fathers from the beginning. First, for the purpose of making the exercise of piety common to all. "...seeing they professed themselves to be the property of God, and esteemed all they possessed as received from Him, and secondly, for the purpose of admonishing them of the necessity of some expiation in order to their reconciliation with God. When each offers something of his property, there is a solemn giving of thanks, as if he would testify by his present act that he owes God whatever he possesses. But the sacrifice of cattle and the effusion of blood contains something further, namely that the offerer should have death before his eyes, and should nevertheless believe in God as propitious to him. So the idea here is that if you're just contrasting the offerings themselves, which, by the way, as I said at the very beginning, it's a comprehensive picture. Worship is comprehensive. You, you don't have uh, a righteous offering of worship that is, that is righteous because of the contents of the, the offering if someone brought, you could have someone come right next to Abel who has a heart that is far from God, that rejects God, and bring the same kind of lamb for, for sacrifice, and that not be an acceptable form of worship. That's that's the principle here. But in looking specifically at the act of worship itself and trying to draw out the principle here, it's this idea that the heart that says I want to be esteemed, that my worship is to get me acclaim. Just like the Pharisees, they use the context of worship to draw attention to themselves. I mean, it's kind of an unspeakable thought when you think about it. I mean, it kind of defies the whole nature of worship. But they literally, over and over again, they actually created and enhanced and created a more complex system so that they could do more of drawing esteem and praise to themselves in their acts of worship. Not demonstrate what God, not, not show gratitude or offer up to God a, rec, a recognition of the sacrifice that's needed to absolve them and put focus on what God has done as opposed to what, who they are and what they're representing. So the focus is upon God and what He has done in the heart of a true worshiper. And the last point is very simple and straightforward as well that false worship is not accepted. It's just not accepted. It's not acceptable. But true worship is always accepted by God because the worshiper has been accepted by God. You'll notice in the text that God had no regard both for the worshiper and for the act of worship. It's a package deal there. And the nature of Cain's offering was deemed unacceptable because Cain himself was also deemed unacceptable. I mean, they were, they were, they were inter, interconnected, indivisibly interconnected. And the converse is true for Abel. Abel was accepted, and his offering was accepted. And you can go to the Hebrews passage to say that he offered it in faith. And just like with Abraham, it was accounted to him as righteousness. He is the society, he is the representative of the society of the righteous, the society of the redeemed. And his offering of praise and worship was accepted as he was accepted. So again, false worship, it can be prescribed true acts of worship that is still false and not accepted by God. Now here's the point of challenge, is that you and I, or people all around us, can gather in this place, in this time of worship that we're about to have, in churches all over the City and all over the state and all over the country and all around the world can gather and can sing and can participate and can do all of the things that are being prescribed as part of a service of worship and it still not be acceptable. You can offer up sacrifices and they not be acceptable, even though the external sacrifice is identical to the external sacrifice from the one who is accepted. Listen to Piper's kind of summary on this whole idea of worship and its internal and external components. He says, The inner essence of worship is to know God truly and then respond from the heart to that knowledge by valuing God, treasuring God, prizing God, enjoying God, being satisfied with God above all earthly things. And then that deep, restful, joyful satisfaction in God overflows in demonstrable acts of praise from the lips and demonstrable acts of love in serving others for the sake of Christ. Jesus said, if you come to bring your offering, and what? You have ought against your brother. What are you supposed to do? Lay it down go make things right, and then come back and worship. So I think this passage, when we look at these two figures in biblical history of Cain and Abel, it's amazing how it brings this ringing challenge to us in the context of our worship, to really challenge us to be those who worship out of a heart of simple humility. We come to our times of both corporate worship, of private worship, and our acts of service that are external acts of worship and honor to the Lord. And our heart's desire and the question that should be on our minds and the question that we should be battling to have at the forefront of our thinking is, God, what is it that pleases you? That's what I want to do. And as I learn and grow and stumble and fall, and I discover the areas in which my worship is not fully pleasing to you, My response is not resentment or anger or frustration, it's repentance and asking the question again, what must I do to please you? How can I worship you in spirit and in truth? The interesting thing about, to me, or I think the compelling thing, interesting is too mild of a word, the the piercing truth from John chapter 4 is that Jesus uses that statement, that, that instruction, to inform the inquirer that, It's those that worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Those are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. So the Father is seeking worshipers, not just acts of worship. It's the worshipers themselves that the Father is seeking. And so my prayer for us is that we would be found faithful in our worship. This text would challenge us to be faithful in all of our acts, both public and private, of worship to the true and living God. Any final thoughts or comments before we pray?